Good morning, crowd family, and happy, happy Sunday. And I am so blessed that you can join us today. Listen, a week ago, we sent uh, out a poll on our church app and also an email to see how many of you would be comfortable with attending in-car church services in our church parking lot. Uh, some of you have responded. Thank you for your response. Uh, but if you have not responded, we ask that you respond so we can plan accordingly. And we will keep you updated as we move forward in this decision, okay? Now, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5 is today's text. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. We are now in part 9 of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, as always, I want to do a quick review from last week's text which was chapter 3, verses 5 through 23. Now remember, primary in context, the text is speaking to ministers, pastors who are building up the building of God, the assembly of the church. But it does have application to all believers. And so Paul begins by telling the Corinthian believers that he and Apollos are mere servants who were given an opportunity to serve. They were servants, instruments God used to bring the Corinthians to faith in Christ. And then he used an agriculture metaphor, and that's in verses 6 uh, through 7a. And Paul writes, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. And then verse 7a says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. Love that, but only God who makes things grow. In other words, they all equal zero. They're not anything in terms of actually causing the growth. Their value is as instruments in the very hands of God. It's God, say it's God. It's God who makes it grow. It's God who gives the increase. Let's jump to verse nine. For we are God's fellow workers. Well, there Paul sees himself and Apollos as fellow workers with God and for God in their labors. Then he says this, you are God's field. Now keep in mind the you here is plural. It means you all. So you all are God's field. And Paul's talking to the believers as a group in Corinth, not individuals. What Paul did, Paul stopped talking about himself and Apollos and began to talk about the Corinthians, the church, say the church, the church. The church is called a field, which also belongs to God. Then he says this, God's building. God's building. Paul shifts the metaphor from agriculture to architecture. And what he does, he he switches from talking about the church as a field and now uses the metaphor of a building. You're you're God's field. That's great and all, but guess what? You're also God's structure. You're God's building. You're the church. The church. Look at verse 10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. And then Paul tells the Corinthian believers, tells all believers, in verse 11, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ, say Jesus Christ. So Paul made it very clear that the foundation of the church and the foundation of the believer is who? Jesus Christ. And then we saw how the way that we build upon the foundation will determine our rewards on the day of judgment for believers known as the, what? The Bema seat. 
And there will be a judgment of rewards, and it will be based upon our works that we have done. And what Paul does, Paul describes two types of works or labor for Christ that believers will have committed in this life. And he says this, gold, silver, and precious costly stones. And, and so, friends, these, these works or labor will receive a reward from God based upon the quality and also the purity of the works themselves. And then he says the wood, hay, and stubble. Well, these works or labor will be burned up during the judgment and they will receive no reward uh, from God. And then Paul gives two warnings. Remember this? Two warnings. He says, don't defile God's temple and don't deceive yourselves. Don't defile God's temple and don't deceive yourselves. And then in verses 21 through 23, he says this. So then, no more boasting about men. In other words, leaders. He's saying, stop it. Quit comparing leaders and boasting about them. He says, all things are yours. Verse 22, whether Paul or Paulos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours. Verse 23, love verse 23. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian believers, to all believers, to us, that we have all the resources and wisdom at God's disposal. We are co-heirs, say co-heirs, with Christ in all things. Listen, friends, our birthright, if you're saved, our birthright makes us spiritually rich, spiritually rich in resources for living life to the fullest. So as believers, we belong to Christ as Christ belongs to God. Somebody say amen. This now brings us to today's text and the title of my message is the faithful minister. Say that, the faithful minister. And here in the text, Paul is beginning to bring to a close his exhortation uh, to the church about dissolving the factions, the fan clubs, and, and the groupies that existed among themselves and in which the people were divided around their favorite teacher, preacher, or the person who led them to Christ. Now, friends, remember, the Corinthians were very proud and, and self-serving, which caused all of the strife and divisions in the church. But even more than this, the people were not really understanding, were not understanding what true leadership in the church consisted of. And if they truly understood this, they wouldn't have been divided up into these groups. So what Paul does, what Paul does is he, is he describes to the church, what he does is he gives them a proper perspective on what Christian leadership in the church consists of. And friends, here in the text, here in the text, we see the characteristics of, a, of the faithful minister of God. Now, perhaps, perhaps, you're, you're ready to check out because you're thinking to yourself, I'm not a teacher, I'm not a preacher, so what does this message have to do with me? Well, it has a lot to do with you. You see, the text, the text is going to show you the characteristics of a faithful minister of God. And after the message, after you hear the message, you can see whether we as pastors and teachers here at Cry Out display those characteristics. Got it? And by the way, friends, by the way, there is always application for everyone in the Word of God. So three points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this, the identity. Write that down, the identity. The identity. Number one, point number one, the identity. And verse 1a says this, Paul writes verse 1a, 
So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. I love that. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. You see, right off the bat, love this, right off the bat, Paul wants the Corinthian believers to think of and to view him, Apollos and Peter, as servants, not celebrities, not big shots, but as servants. And not just servants, but what? Servants of Christ. Now, the word servant here in the text is different from the word servant back in chapter 3, verse 5. There, the Greek word servant is diakonos, which originally meant uh, table waiters. That's where we get our word deacons from. The word servant here in the text is not the common word for servant or minister that's usually used in the New Testament. In fact, friends, this is the only place in Paul's writings where this specific word is used. So I want you to follow me here. The word servant here in the text is the Greek word huperatus, huperatus, which literally means under rower, under rower. It originally referred to the, the galley slaves, the galley slaves who were chained to the rowing benches in the bottom tier of the Roman warships. Now, if you ever seen the movie uh, Ben-Hur, then you know exactly what that looks like. Some of you young ones have no idea what that movie is. It's a great movie, by the way. But these under rowers, under rowers, they were the lowest, uh, most unskilled and despised slaves in the empire. And at the command of the captain of the ship, these under rowers would row or stop rowing, speed up or slow down, make a right turn or make a left turn. They did nothing, nothing without receiving a command from the captain of the ship. Also, the, uh, no Galilee slave, no Galilee slave was ever exalted above any other Galilee slave. They had a common rank, and it was the lowest rank. They had the, the hardest labor, the cruelest punishment, the, the least appreciation, the most hopeless existence of all slaves in the empire. You see, the word huperatus gradually came to mean anybody who was under the authority of, of another person, subordinates of any sort, uh, to those under authority to another. So what Paul is saying here in the text is consider us, uh, teachers or preachers and teachers, Galilee servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. And friends, for those of us who are in leadership as preachers and teachers, we are Galilee servants of Jesus Christ. That's what all of us are. We are galley servants, slaves of Jesus Christ. We are first and above all else servants of Jesus Christ. In everything, we are subordinate and subject to Him. You see, as teachers and preachers, we cannot serve people rightly unless we serve the Lord rightly, and we cannot serve the Lord rightly unless we we see ourselves rightly as his servants under his authority. So this begs the question, how are teachers and preachers supposed to serve? Well, look at verse 1b. And as those entrusted, circle that word, with the secret things of God. And as those entrusted, say entrusted, with the secret things of God. So Paul says, they are to be viewed not just as servants, 
as under rowers, but also as stewards, managers. In the Greek, the word steward is oikonomos, oikonomos. It literally means house manager, one who manages and oversees the business or property of another. The steward supervises the property, the fields, the vineyards, uh, the finances, the food, and other servants on behalf of the master. He was, a, he was a, a, a steward, a manager of what the master had. And this was the job description that Joseph had in Potiphar's house in Genesis 39, 5-6. Genesis chapter 39, verses 5-6 through 6 says this, And it came about that from the time Potiphar made him overseer, him, speaking of Joseph, overseer in his house, and all over, and all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. This, the Lord's blessing, was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except food which he ate. So Joseph was a steward, a manager of the house of Potiphar, okay, in charge of all that Potiphar owned. Uh, Joseph was not the owner, but not the keeper, but the, the manager, the steward of all that Potiphar owned. It's also like the, the man of the talents in Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 25, Matthew 25 of 14 through 30, uh, who did the most to multiply the talents which his master gave him, of which his master would require of him uh, when he returned. So stay with me here, okay? So preachers and teachers are stewards, okay, managers of the secret things of God. So what are the secret things of God? His written word. His written word. Preachers, listen now, and teachers are called by God in a special sense from other saints to, to preach and teach the truths of the gospel, to preach and teach the whole counsel of God as found in the word of God and which cannot be known by any human reasoning. Listen, ministers are primarily teachers and preachers of truth, of truth. The Lord Jesus, the master, the Lord Jesus, the master, has entrusted, entrusted his ministers with his truth, and they are, and they are to faithfully preach it and teach it to the church. Get this, the church is the house, Christ is the master, and the ministers are the stewards. I'm going to say it again. The church is the house, Christ is the master, and the ministers are the stewards, the managers of the church, the house. Stewards to bring the word of God to the body of Christ. They must be preachers and teachers of the word of God and the word of God, period. Not preachers and teachers of human philosophy or worldly wisdom or opinion or what's popular. Preachers and teachers of divine truth, divine truth, so that lives are changed and lived on the basis of divine wisdom and revealed truth as found in the very word of God. Now, as your senior pastor here at Cry Out, my primary responsibility is to teach you the inerrant, infallible, unadulterated, life-changing, transforming word of God. Listen, I'm not, I'm not here to make you like me. 
Now, if you like me, that's cool and all, but I'm not here to make you like me. Okay, I don't preach messages so that you'll like me. Okay, I'm not here to preach candy-coated sermons or to tickle your ears or to get political. I'm here to serve you, to serve you by doing what God has entrusted me to do. And that is, friends, to preach to you the full counsel of God's word. Not philosophy, not my opinion, not what's in, but the full counsel of his word. And as long as I'm your pastor, I'm going to make sure that you are challenged, that you are edified, that you are encouraged, built up, growing and maturing in the word of God. Listen, I count it an awesome privilege, blessing, honor, and responsibility to handle accurately and preach the word of God to you. I don't take it lightly. I don't. I don't take this lightly. Preaching and teaching God's word is no joke. What did James say? Do you remember what James said in James chapter 3, verse 1? James 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because ye know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Judged more strictly. There's a higher accountability to those who preach and teach. Now, I want to say this. God's ministers have no authority of their own. Now, they have authority, but it comes to them by Christ. They are subordinate to him. They merely handle truth. Therefore, listen now, therefore, Christians ought to exalt the originator of truth, who is Christ, and not the handlers of truth, God's ministers. So the identity of the minister is servanthood and stewardship. They're to serve and manage the word of God to the people of God. Point number two is the requirement. Write that down. The requirement. The requirement. Write that down. Look at verse two with me. Verse two with me. Paul writes, now it is required, there it is required, that those who have been given the trust must prove faith. I want to read that again. You got to get it. You got to get it. Let it sink in. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. In other words, trustworthy, dependable, reliable. This is the Greek word pistas. That's what it means, pistas. Trustworthy, faithful, dependable, reliable. Friends, a steward is entrusted with his master's household and possessions, and he is expected, the steward is expected to manage both well to his master's satisfaction. You see, the complete requirement that God has for a preacher and a teacher is to be faithful, trustworthy, dependable, reliable in what he has called them to do. To be faithful and consistent in preaching and teaching his word. Listen, they must be unwavering in their commitment to be faithful to that. You see, Paul's main issue is not, am I popular, or is Apollos a better teacher, or, or, is, or is Peter a better preacher? Rather, his issue is, have I and Apollos and, and, and Peter been faithful to do the work God has assigned us, God has assigned us to do? It's all about being faithful. Faithful. 
Say that, faithful. It's faithfulness. Someone said this, a person who is more concerned about the quality of his service rather than being a faithful steward will become somewhat paranoid over his service to the Lord. In fact, he may easily begin to see service as more of a performance for an audience of people around him rather than a ministry with God himself as his audience. There's a big difference in ministering to people with God as the audience and performing in front of people with them as the audience. He goes on to say this, a person who does the latter will easily think he did not do well if he makes a mistake or if he doesn't get praised. And a person can easily begin to practice flawless performance apart from faithful service. Wow. There's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Be faithful in what God has called you to do. Be faithful in what God has called you to do. God requires, listen now, God requires every pastor, every Bible study teacher, every usher, every greeter, every children's ministry worker, youth worker, safety net worker, food pantry worker, sound tech worship leader, every servant, every steward to be faithful, to be faithful. And to remember that, listen now, that we all serve what? An audience of one. God himself is that audience. Now, God requires that preachers and teachers be faithful, right? Reliable, trustworthy, dependable, and consistent in preaching and teaching his word, right? Right? But he also requires that they be faithful and trustworthy, reliable, dependable, consistent in obedience to his word. I want you to follow me here. A pastor's spiritual gift, gifts, education, creativeness, popularity, or the size of his ministry or church means absolutely nothing compared simply to his being a faithful, trustworthy servant of Jesus Christ, a steward of the word of God and being a doer of the word of God. Friends, it's just as important for a pastor or a teacher to live out and obey God's words, God's word, excuse me, as it is for them to preach it and teach it. To have their walk match their talk. The key test is this. Have they been faithful not only uh, not only to preach and teach God's word, but also to obey it? In other words, not just faithful preaching and teaching, but faithful practicing as well. You know, a preacher needs to ask himself three things, and I ask myself these three things. Is the word of God well preached? Are the people of God well fed? And is the God who called me well pleased with how I deliver his word and how I live my life? Cry out, family, I love you guys dearly. And I count it a privilege and an honor to be your pastor. And I've been your pastor for going on 29 years. And I hope that I may be found faithful to Jesus Christ. I may be found faithful in my walk with him, faithful to my family, faithful to you, faithful 
to feeding your souls every Sunday, faithful to the gospel, faithful to God's word, and faithful to the will and glory of God, that I would be found as a faithful servant and steward of the work of God. You see, church servanthood and stewardship are inseparable from faithfulness. I'm going to say it again. Servanthood and stewardship are inseparable from faithfulness. In Matthew chapter 24, write that down. If you're still with me, by the way, say amen. Matthew 24, verses 45 through 46. Matthew 24, 45 through 46. Jesus asked, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? And then verse 46 says this, It will be good for that servant, that servant, whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Hey, when Jesus returns, the only absolute requirement by which he will judge pastors and teachers is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Not their gifts, not how well they spoke, not how big their church was, but faithfulness. Were they faithful and true to preaching and teaching the absolute truth of God's word? And did they live out his word in their lives? In their lives. There's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Be doers of God's word. Can you say that? Be doers of God's word. Question, question. Does what you believe about God's word match your behavior? Does what you believe, believe about God's word match your behavior? Does your walk match your talk? James in chapter 1, verse 22, James 1, 22, James says this, do not merely listen to the word of God and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Do what it says. Ephesians chapter 4, I love this, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord, then or therefore, indicating the transition from knowing the truth in chapters 1 through 3 to now living it. And he says, I urge you to live a life or walk in a manner worthy, say worthy, of the calling you have received. That phrase, uh, to live a life, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received, has the idea of living a life in in such a way, listen now, in such a way that it measures up to something. In the Greek, the word worthy is axios. It, it speaks of weight or scales. And in the text, it means balance the scales or measure to a standard. In other words, friends, let your life, let your walk weigh as much as the calling you've received. So as Christians, what's that calling? Salvation. Say that, salvation. We're now saved, right? So our life, our walk ought to measure up. In other words, be consistent with our calling. You see, friends, God in Christ has blessed us, so in response to his love, in response to his grace, now we need to obey him. God has given us an awesome calling in Christ. Now it's our responsibility to live up to that calling, to live up to our salvation in Christ. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Can't hear you. 
you're saved, say amen. Question, how much do you value your salvation? Huh? How much do you value your salvation? Okay, let me ask you this. What is the value of your salvation? What does it mean to you? Well, it should mean everything to you. Because how you look at that, listen now, how you look at that, friends, is going to determine, going to determine how you live, how you walk, how you act, how you think. Listen, if salvation in Christ has not affected your lifestyle, if it has not affected the way you live, the way you treat people, the way you talk to people, the way you think, the things you do, then you have a low value of your salvation. Your life, my life, then is not measuring up to the standard God requires. In Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul shows us the value of our salvation in Christ. Therefore, he's saying, he's saying, measure up by the way you allow it to affect your life. Paul's saying this, don't have a wimpy walk, have a worthy walk. A walk, a life that's consistent with your calling. Conduct yourself. Conduct yourself in a manner that measures up to the value of your salvation. Paul is simply saying this. If you're saved, if you're saved, if you call yourself a born-again Christian, if you're saved, then act like it. Act like it. Don't just say it, but live it out in your life. Be a doer of God's Word. Listen, friends, you can tell a lot about a person inwardly by the way they act, the way they live outwardly, right? By the way they demonstrate their, listen, by the way they demonstrate their lifestyle, the kind of fruit they display outwardly. You see, fruit don't lie. Fruit don't lie. Right? Question. Does your lifestyle all that's been said, does your lifestyle betray what you say you are? Does your lifestyle betray what you say you are? It's food for thought, right? Listen, your view of salvation, your view of salvation should mean everything to you. It should dictate the way you live your life. Got it? The way you live your life life. Listen, if, if you don't believe every single word found in the Word of God, then don't call yourself a Christian. Okay? Don't call yourself a Christian. Okay? We need to believe everything in the Word of God. I believe what this Word says, and I'm going to live out to the best of my ability through the power of the Holy Spirit to live out what He says. We need to call ourselves Christians and live like Christians. Amen? Amen. The identity, the requirement, number three, is the evaluation. Write that down, the evaluation. The evaluation. And here, Paul points out that there are three, per se, groups who evaluate the minister, but only one of them really counted. So three sub-points here. Three subpoints. The first one, the evaluation, first one, the evaluation, first subpoint is this by others. By others. Write that down. By others. And we're going to look at verse 3a. If you're still with me, say amen. Verse 3a. 
Paul writes, I care very little if I am judged by you. Now, the you there is referring to those in the Corinthian church, the believers in the church. Then he says, or by any human court. This is referring to unsaved people or the world outside the church. So, so Paul is basically saying that he doesn't get upset when people in the church criticize him. And it's not that it didn't matter how he was judged by them, but it mattered very little how they judged him. Why? Because he knew that God's judgment, say God's judgment, was far more important and also that was far more important that also that no minister must answer ultimately to unsaved people or to the world, but only God, to God, his master. You see, everyone wants to get in on this act of evaluating Paul's faithfulness or unfaithfulness in the ministry. Now, now I want to say, I want to say this, and I want to be clear that Paul is not suggesting that the pastor should never listen to others or to seek to know how others evaluate him or to judge, to judge on matters of outward sin. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, 1 Timothy 5, 19 through 21 speaks of that. Listen, the pastor should always listen to the honest evaluations from his leadership and sometimes and sometimes from his congregation. What Paul is saying is that no pastor should lay himself upon the whims and petty wishes of people in the church. I mean, to do that would, would make him go crazy because a pastor cannot please everybody, right? In essence, Paul is saying, I know you're thinking about me and I know what you're thinking and it's not good, but I want you to know I don't think it very significant. He cared very little whether they thought him faithful or unfaithful because he knew that his ultimate responsibility was, listen now, was not to them but to God. They didn't call him. They didn't send him. They didn't uh, you know, tell him what doctrines to preach. God called him. God sent him. God told him what to preach. Uh, he was the, sir, the steward of God, friends. Therefore, he will answer ultimately to God, not men. Now, I want to say this, and we're going to park it here for just a bit here. It is not easy being a pastor. I'm going to say it again. It is not easy being a pastor. It is one of the most difficult jobs or calling in the world. And honestly, friends, it is very easy to criticize the pastor. And no one, say no one, will ever know the work load of a pastor what a pastor goes through, uh, the demands of a pastor until that person becomes a pastor. Uh, 20, almost 29 years ago when I started the ministry, uh, Pastor Dave Sawkins, I love him, gave me wonderful wisdom, a wonderful pearl of wisdom. He says, Arnold, as a pastor, you got to have tough skin but a sensitive heart. You got to have tough skin, but a sensitive heart. That never left me because the ministry of a pastor, the calling of a pastor is not easy. Tough skin, but a sensitive heart. Uh, with that being said, I want to give you some stats uh, regarding pastors. So follow me here. 70% of pastors, it says, do not have a close friend with whom they can openly share their struggles. 
of pastors report working between 55 to 75 hours per week. 65% of pastors feel their family, that their family's lives, excuse me, their family, their families live, their family lives in a glass house and fear they are not good enough to meet expectations. 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses are discouraged or are dealing with depression. 23% of pastors report being distant to their family. 78% of pastors report having their vacation and personal time interrupted with ministry duties or expectations. More than 350 plus pastors, some say it's more than that, leave the ministry, leave the ministry every single month. And the top three dominant reasons are burnt out, moral failure, or contention within their local congregations. It's not easy being a pastor. So there's a lesson. Here's a lesson. Are you ready? Pray for and encourage your pastors. Pray for and encourage your pastors. Pastor Joe and I, we... We need your prayers, especially now. I mean, this year has been extremely difficult and tough. We need your prayers. We need your encouragement. And I want to thank all of you who have encouraged me and who have prayed for me. And man, many of you have given me, sent me texts and emails and phone calls. And I want to thank you for that. It goes a long way. We need your prayers and encouragement. So the evaluation by others, the second subpoint is the evaluation, second subpoint, by himself. Write that down by himself. Look at verse 3b, by himself, verse 3b. Indeed, Paul says, I do not even judge myself. What's Paul saying? Well, here Paul is saying that he couldn't accurately appraise or assess his own ministry. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that Paul never sat down by himself or with his elders or the congregation he taught to evaluate the effectiveness of his ministry. What he's saying is this. He's saying is this, is that his judgment was incomplete. He didn't have all the facts. He had blind spots about his ministry. He couldn't know all the motivations of his heart as he was performing his ministry. That's what he's saying. Verse 4a. Verse 4a. My conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent. Now, though Paul's conscience was clear, that didn't get him off the hook. Got it? You see, as to whether Paul was faithful wouldn't be settled by his conscience, but by Christ at the judgment seat. You see, God was continually examining Paul's ministry, and he is examining every pastor's ministry. And he will judge not only one's works, get this now, but the motives. It's key word, motives behind the works because he is the only impartial, competent, final, fair judge. I want to say this. Paul's not saying that the congregation shouldn't evaluate the works of the pastor's ministry. Friends, if any pastor or teacher is in doctrinal error, 
or moral error or is not being faithful to their calling, then they are to be judged. They are. But judge their actions, not their motives. Got it? Judge their actions, not their motives. Only God can judge the motives of the heart. Only God can do that. So the evaluation by others, by himself, and the third sub-point is this, by God, by God. And look at verses 4b through verse 5. If you're still with me, say amen. Verses 4b through verse 5. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, Paul says. He will bring to light, listen now, what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So Paul urged them, right? That they were to judge nothing before the appointed time until and wait until the Lord comes. He's speaking of motives here. Now again, this doesn't mean that the pastors and teachers are not to be held accountable for teaching error or for living in immorality, but it stresses, listen, say stresses, it stresses that we can only see the outside of a person, okay? We can't see their true motives. And so we have to wait the assessment of God himself. Only he, only God, right, can, can bring to light, as Paul says, bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the motives of the hearts. That is the things that we cannot see. Only God can see. Only God can see. So the lesson is this, and we're going to wrap this all up. The lesson is this. Only God's evaluation counts. Only God's evaluation counts counts. Only he can judge fairly. He alone can can light the things hidden in darkness. He alone knows our motives. He alone, listen now, has a clear view into our hearts. Listen, all ministers will be judged by God and judged more strictly. They have a higher accountability as preachers and teachers. And he will bring out the secrets and motivations of their hearts to see whether their ministry was done to exalt self or to exalt God, to please men or to please God, to be rewarded or not rewarded. Let's look at the text again. Last portion of verse 5. At that time, each will receive his praises from God. In other words, ministers will be praised. In other words, rewarded, rewarded for the things they were done, that were done, me, that were done for Christ and not for their own glory. But until that time, until that time, don't exalt or praise your pastors and teachers nor criticize the motives of their hearts. God will take care of that. God's in charge of that. What the church needs to do is encourage and pray for their pastors so they can faithfully minister to the body of Christ effectively, with effectiveness, with real conviction, and with power. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. 
Thank you for entrusting me, Pastor Joey, and all of our Bible study teachers with the amazing responsibility, honor, and privilege of preaching and teaching your word. And Father, I pray here at, here at Cry Out that your word is well preached, that the people are well fed, and that you, Lord, are well pleased with how we preach, teach, and live our lives that we would be, in your eyes, faithful ministers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Say amen. Perhaps there's some of you who are listening today who've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life. And today you're saying, you know what, Pastor? I'm, I'm feeling something in my heart. That's the Spirit of God calling you to himself. And if that's you, you want to be saved, you got to admit that you're a sinner, acknowledge that you need a substitute, and accept Jesus Christ as Savior. Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says you will, not might, you will be saved. So if that's you, I want you to bow your head, close your eyes, and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I, I invite you, Lord, I admit that I'm a sinner and I invite you to come into my life to save me, to change me, and to cleanse my life from sin. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, Satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. From this day forth, I will love you and serve you faithfully until you call me home. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Now, if you said that prayer to follow Jesus Christ to Ask him to come into your life. We would love to hear from you. And so you can email us at cryout at cryout cry contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org. We would love to hear from you. So I hope you guys enjoyed the message. You got a lot out of this message. And I pray that God would bless the remainder of your week, that you have a blessed Sunday. Love you, miss you. Don't forget to reply to the poll that we sent out. Love you all. And I will see you next week. God bless you and take care. Bye-bye.